Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. Product master means having the influence you want and need to drive product strategy. That move happens the more you listen to this podcast, and I also provide training to accelerate the move. I have a question for you. How do you know what products you should build? What products will really delight customers? The answer isn't a mystery, and it's been expressed by numerous past guests. One that stands out is Ben Britton. He's the Chief Innovation Officer at Snap-on Tools, and he shared that he takes their product teams to meet with customers four days a week. They're always interacting with customers. And that's a recurring theme, time with customers to understand what will delight them. And it's often expressed as voice of the customer or VOC research. My guest has put VOC into practice with great results. She's the Senior Director of Product Management for Teammate and also an award-winning product manager. We discuss VOC tools and the specifics for how product managers can use them. And I think you'll find a lot of value in this discussion We get into contextual interviews and budget-minded usability testing. Also, the summary notes are really useful to look through and see the highlights of our discussion. And if you don't have time to listen to the whole thing, just check out the summary notes. You'll find those at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 174. I hope you enjoy the interview. Galene, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators podcast. Thanks, Chad, for having me. So we had a great time meeting at the PDMA conference back in October, I think, or was it November? Yeah. November, I guess, last year in Chicago. And that was very nice to meet. And I had asked in one of the sessions I did how many people listened to the podcast. And it was great to see some hands go up. You were one of the persons, one of the people that, that came up and introduced themselves. And I really appreciate that. I'm always glad to meet listeners. And you have a really interesting background as a senior product manager. That would be great for us to talk. Our topic is going to be voice of customer research. You know, the tools we talk about, I'm sure, apply to lots of areas. But let's just get a little context for how you're applying them. Tell us about the product you're involved in and, and who's that for. Sure. So uh, the product is a uh, teammate. So I belong to uh, Welch's Core as an organization. And in their tax and accounting division, we have uh, an internal audit product called Teammate. So that's the team and the product that I work on. And I've been involved with Teammate for uh, 18 years. So since early on in its inception. And it's a, it's a tool to help teams with transparency, consistency, and efficiency in their internal audit process. And so our cu- customer base is actually global. We have, uh, cu- we have clients in over 120 different countries, and they could be anything from private companies to public companies to government agencies. So it crosses the gamut. And the size of, a, of an internal audit group could be sort of one or two users all the way into you know several thousand users. So it really depends on um, on the territory, the industry, and, and the organization itself. And for listeners who don't actually understand what internal audit is, because that's a right. it's an area of organizations that lots of people have uh, maybe vaguely heard of, but don't necessarily understand. Um, it's really it could be anything from sort of what's defined as sort of the internal watchdog in an organization um, to sort of a trusted advisor who has a you know a seat at the table of the senior um, of the of the senior leadership where they're they're tasked with independent and objective evaluation of of the business, particularly sort of risk and controls that that business is in, 
And in the case of government, um, that might not be the business, but rather an agency or a program that uh, that an agency runs. So it's fundamentally the business operations and, and uh, on the financial aspects, it sounds like a good part of it, the risk and control aspects of the company. Yeah, and it can extend into operations. So there's yeah. lots of internal audit groups that are actually looking at the operations of the company as a whole as well. I'm trying to just, in my mind, start off, this is a B2B or a B2C. You sell directly to businesses and businesses are your customer. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we treat it as a, as a, as a B2B because organizations are the ones that, that, you know, essentially license the product. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have direct contact with the actual users who are using the software. Yep. Very good. So you can get the pull through what they need and what they value. Exactly. And what they value is very much the voice of the customer research that we need to do to understand what our customer does value, what their problems are and what their needs are. When it comes to you getting uh, insights from them, what kind of tools have you used? We use uh, a variety of tool sets. So anything that's a little less interactive, to, uh, which might be things like user submitting ideas on our user community. Mm-hmm. Um, we get feedback from our professional services team when they go out and implement the software. So specific feedback from specific customers. Uh, that also includes our sales team when they're doing demos of the product to prospects uh, mm-hmm. or reviewing uh, requests for proposal RFPs. So, uh, and trade shows. So we do spend a fair bit of time at trade shows um, talking about our product. But then we also do some more uh, interactive and detailed uh, voice of customer as well. So we do things like contextual inquiry with customers, uh, usability testing. Um, we, uh, we do surveys. So sometimes those surveys are quick one or two questions just to get the pulse of, of our user base on, a, on an idea. Uh, but they could be more in-depth questionnaires or surveys that are more like market studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other big thing for us is we have uh, user conferences around the globe. Mm-hmm. So our biggest one is in the United States. And we have, um, you know, sort of seven, 800 customers that will come to that over three days. And in addition to sort of highlighting the changes to the product in the last year, uh, one of the things that we run throughout that conference is a usability lab. And in that usability lab, people can come in and they can actually do some scenario usability testing uh, with people in the lab. Um, They could evaluate prototypes of things that we're thinking about doing. We also run small focus groups in there um, as well. And through all of those things, we get a a tremendous amount of insight from our customer base in that short period of time that feeds into our uh, our design and our development process for the, the next six to 12 months. So there's a lot of thought that goes into what we're going to showcase during that usability lab, mm-hmm. uh, the areas where we're really looking for more feedback from customers. And we certainly get that. Our customers are really engaged. That's one of the things that they seek out at the conference, which is great. What's the architecture of the system? Are, is this a SaaS architecture or client server installed locally? It's so we have um, like we have our legacy product, which is more of a client server application that's mostly installed on premise. Although we do offer it in a in, in the cloud, um, and then our new platform, which we just released last January, which will be a long term replacement uh, for mm-hmm. the for the legacy platform, um, is an entirely web based application. So it can still be installed on premise for customers that that prefer that method. But we're finding more of our customers, new customers, and customers migrating to the platform are, are going with our our team cloud or hosted solution. I'll get back to that. I was curious about the usability lab and changes that you see in the UI. And uh, if we have time for that question, then I'll follow up. Okay. But I really want to get into some of the, these tools that you mentioned. Yeah. You know, the user user community, feedback from the professional services, the salespeople, that all makes good sense. Contextual inquiry might be new for some people. So let's dive into that and see how you apply that. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So this is a tool that we use when uh, a concept or an idea is, is really sort of greenfield or 
it could be open to multiple interpretations as to how we want to solve it. So we generally start with a survey that goes out to our customer base, where we're specifically trying to pinpoint um, a pain point or, or a problem that we need to solve. And we analyze those survey results that come back. And that helps us sort of with a it helps us to find sort of a, a set of questions or uh, an interview guide that we really want to go through. Uh-huh. Um, and then from the people who responded, we also pick customers that uh, we're going to go on site and spend time with. And we try to make sure it's a good cross section of small customers, big customers, different geographic locations, different industries, uh, different levels of maturity in their in their methodology or their audit process so that we don't have too biased of results coming at the, uh, coming at the other side, right? You right. want to make sure that you're really considering all of your customers. And then over a two to three week period, uh, members of my product management team uh, go out to visit these customers. Now, and they sometimes also go with uh, our, some of people from our, our user design team or user experience team. Mm-hmm. And sometimes some of our market development consultants will go with them because we always send out two person teams. And so they'll spend, you know, generally a day on site with a, with a client um, going through how they perform a task or how they solve that pain point that we had identified in the survey. And there's two people on those teams because we have one person who's like the active interviewer. They're the ones that are asking the questions and really being interactive with with the user. And then the second person is more the note taker. So yes, they're taking notes, pictures, running the video camera, because we try to make sure we have multiple different artifacts that come back from those interviews. And so you spend spend that time getting the customer not to just tell you what they do for the process, but actually walk you through that process. And that's that's incredibly important because what we find over and over again is what people tell you isn't necessarily all the elements of what they actually do. So, you know, as an example, you can you can sit at somebody's desk with them and as they're going through a process, you see them reference instruction sheets they have pinned to their cubicle wall mm-hmm. or some sort of reference chart that tells them what to do when in a particular situation. So, you know, those are things that they may not remember to tell you about in an actual sort of interview, but you see them reference those. And then that's a great time to ask the question. So what do you use that for? And how often do you reference it? And, um, you know, is that something that would be more helpful in the software versus being pinned up on your wall? Right. So we certainly see a lot of those things uh, that transpire. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, Colleen, that, that combination of doing the interviews to get deeper insights. And then actually observing, watching them do their work is really powerful. And you do hear people, there's lots of cases of this that, you know, sometimes we find the person who says, oh, the software is perfect. I love the way it works. And when you actually go watch their work, they may have, you know, 10 artifacts around their workstation that they're actually referring to. They've tailored the workflow in a way that makes sense for them and works really well, but it's slower than it could be. (laughs) And, And you realize that when you observe what they're actually doing. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. And, you know, and once we get all this information, we, we do take it back to the office. The teams have time to sort of write up their notes and consolidate them a bit, um, making sure that they don't that they don't take away the language, though, that the user actually um, used in the interview. Right. Because right. Sometimes things get interpreted and they get interpreted incorrectly. And then we set up an affinity wall. Um, and then we have development, user experience, and product management collectively come together, sort of walk that affinity wall and identify some of the key pain points that we feel that we that we need to, to solve in a, in, a, in a new release of a product or a new design of a feature. Yeah. And, and what we often find is that sometimes the pain points you need to solve are not actually things that the customers ever talked about. Uh, one great example that I have is um, I participated in a contextual inquiry one time with a with a client and, and she was telling me uh, about this fantastic knowledge base. So auditors have 
risk and control libraries and audit work programs that they tend to reuse a lot. And she'd spent a tremendous amount of time building out this knowledge base and she was really proud of it. And she was convinced that this was going to make her team a lot more effective and efficient in their job. But she was also frustrated because there were certain team members that weren't really using it. They would rather hmm. just type things out in the in the user interface than go find stuff in the in the knowledge base. And so I asked her to sort of walk me through uh, how she, you know, how she had uh, built out this knowledge base and how she would bring the data back into uh, an audit that she was working on. And so she started the process. She was in the risk and control viewer and she highlighted a specific risk. And then she goes, starts to go through the steps, right, of getting the related content. And we got about halfway through the process. And, and of course, this is in um, a desktop version of software. So screens start to overlay each other, right? Now, now we're in the knowledge base and we're away from where she started. And she's selecting items and, and a coworker happens to pop by her cubicle and ask a question. And so, you know, conversation ensues for about five minutes and it finishes. And then she turns around the computer screen and she kind of sighs and says, I forget where I was. I'll have to start over. And that was a real aha moment for me because I was like, she doesn't actually have any contextual awareness of where she started in the process. And maybe this is why her users aren't, don't think that this is this fantastic pansy of how it's going to make them more efficient because they're regularly interrupted. Mm -hmm. And so this seems clunky to them. And, and so I had an opportunity to kind of walk around the floor when we finished the interview. And I specifically started asking that question. And a lot of people said, yeah, it's like, I can't remember where it was, or I don't remember the exact wording Mm -hmm. of the risk. And so now I'm in the knowledge base. I'm like, I don't know if this applies or doesn't apply. And I can't easily go back. I kind of have to cancel the process and start over again. So I went back to the team and said, okay, I know that the original purpose of, of this particular particular contextual inquiry was X, but here's a bigger problem that I saw. Right. And I think we need to figure out a better solution for this. And so in, in the new product, in the, in the design, um, you have contextual awareness at all the time. You can see where you started and things don't completely overlay the screen. You can see your knowledge base at the same time. Mm-hmm. You can see where you started. Uh, we reduced the number of clicks to get there. And then we also made sure that if you, you know, you added test procedures for a risk, you could then move to another risk and continue to add test procedures. You didn't have to start the process over again. And when we went back with that design to the same customer, she was just like, this is amazing, right? And it wasn't a problem that she had identified to us up front. It was just something that we saw through that contextual inquiry mm-hmm. um, interview. And, and, you know, after we released that, we had lots of customers say, oh, this is so much better than the way it used to work. So again, lots of customers, lots of users had this problem, but they weren't voicing it. And they were voicing other problems, you know, new functionality they thought they needed to have added. And and it's the same sort of point. You need to see the refer- the instructions, right, and the reference guides pinned on the wall because a process is possible, but it's convoluted. Right. Um, and and that, was, uh, that, was, that was sort of the real uh, big win for us uh, with the contextual inquiry was some small things that make a big difference. Great example. I just want to highlight a few things that you went through. So you're starting to the contextual inquiry around some concept, some idea. There's something that you think well, you can investigate to maybe differentiate the product from competitors or to solve a problem that has been coming in, maybe reports from customer service. Someone from the professional services group maybe have come back and provided an idea, right? So you said, okay, let, let's put together a concept. We're going to first send out a survey and that survey does a couple things for you, helps you identify your, your sample, your audience that you can follow up with, you know, pull people out that might be good to do the interviews with, and then helps you get started on an interview guide. What are we going to ask these people, right, when, when we see their work? Yeah, and make sure there's some consistency in what you're asking each customer, because as I said, like there's 
it, it, there's multiple teams going out to perform this work. The, the key there is to try to get it all done in the shortest time period possible mm-hmm. so that you can make decisions on it. So yes, having having that interview guide be fairly structured is really important. Yep. And you're doing face-to-face interviews, which has the yes. huge benefit of you can also observe them in their environment and, and see these other resources they're using that they might not tell you about. Do you ever do phone meetings, phone calls, or web meetings for this kind of work also? We do. We do occasionally. Um, but we found, uh, you know, the first time we went out and did the in-person uh, inquiries, that was a small number of people because I was just trying to test the concept a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and just it's invaluable being able to sit in front of somebody and watch how they work and the kinds right. of interactions you have that it's just difficult to replicate, uh, particularly over a phone call, but even a, a web meeting. Um, Because you sometimes don't get the full picture of the environment in which they work in, sort of how busy, how loud, um, how it changes all the time. Yep. That really, that really do sort of influence how a workflow needs to needs to needs to work in order to be for it to be efficient for that user. Yeah, I think this is really valuable. And people that are are kind of just stuck coming up with ideas for how how can we add more value to our customers. This is how you do it. And I just had a conversation with someone in manufacturing, manufacturing, manufactured product for manufacturers a couple weeks ago. And, you know, th- th- this was the, the big suggestion. He had never been in a customer's environment seeing how they actually use the equipment. It's like, go spend a week and watch them and try to actually do the process with them and you'll get incredible insights. And I've often referenced, and I, I know you listened to this one, the global director of innovation for Snap-on Tools. And he shared, you know, when we, we talked on the interview, that he's out with customers four days a week with his product people. And that's how they get insights. And, and it's different when you actually see them in their environment. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Your one place to become a product master theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. There was something else you said really important was take away the language that they actually used and don't rewrite it. Reiterate that point for us. Why is that important? I think it's important because if the the development teams in particular are hearing this third hand, right, by the time it gets to them. Mm -hmm. So if it's been sort of watered down or the words and phrases that are used are more sort of you know, organizational speak unless the actual, the way the customer actually, you know, identified it. I think sometimes things get misinterpreted or at least the emotion or the the urgency behind something can get lost. Right. 
you know, so if, if you actually give them the words that the customer used, that tends to better relay the emotion that's behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I think it makes it more real to the actual person who wasn't involved in the interview uh, and, and can, can sort of experience it that way. Sometimes watching the video too, right? Like right. if you've particularly, if you've interviewed somebody who's um, very emotional, whether that's positive or negative emotion um, with respect to something, having the development team sort of watch that video can be helpful too. Cause then it's almost like they were there and they can experience that same level of, of joy or pain, depending on which mm-hmm. direction it went. Um, and it gives them, I think it puts a face on the problem as well right. and, and helps them sort of be invested in solving it for that person. We, we just lose a lot when we translate the language right into our company speak and we should do that. Using the customer's real language is, is really valuable and also might be helpful later in marketing pieces to kind of connect, you know, problems that you solved in the new version, right? And the way people probably think about it. And I've seen examples where, you know, maybe the customer is sharing a, a, something they're really dissatisfied and there's some explicitives in there, right? About this BS, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then what gets back to the development team is, they would like to see improvements in the sorting feature. Like that's a really different take on it. <laughs> yes, yeah, because well, you've t- you've turned this sort of you, like you said the negative dissatisfaction of a way a process works, and and suddenly you've turned it into an enhancement request, right? right. And that's not really what was intended from that original conversation. Yep. So a lot of richness in this contextual inquiry tool that you've been using, and I particularly like the example that you shared there at the end of that, which was your. There for one objective, but you're, this other problem came up. You're able to verify that and recognize that here, here's something that we can really help our customers with. And there's just a lot of richness that comes out of these interactions with customers. Yeah, including things that, you know, that, like I said, that you hadn't planned to necessarily discover or make changes to when you when you went out. Um, and sometimes really good insights into things that are bubbling up for that profession or that industry that mm-hmm. aren't aren't problems to solve right now, but they could be sort of six months, nine months down the road um, that you'll get from those conversations and spending an entire day with that customer that I don't think you get in just having the phone conversations or sitting in a focus group or those kinds of things. Right. And you brought back the data and you use an affinity wall to help organize that. Can you just walk us through that briefly? It's a whole lot of sticky notes. So um, from the interview guides, we essentially ask the, the team members that participated to sort of um, highlight some of the key takeaways from mm-hmm. those interviews. And, and then we also get the teams to swap notes. So I'm going to get notes from an interview that I wasn't that I wasn't personally involved in, and I'm going to read through those notes and make sure that I come away with the same ideas and concepts. And then we just start throwing the, the sticky notes up on a, on a big wall. Mm-hmm. And then you start grouping them. So things that sound like they're in common or or comments at least that were in common. And then you start building out from there, where do you have the most a number of comments? It, that's probably a good area to start with. And then you start breaking that down into sort of subcomponents of what those mm-hmm. are, of what those comments are. It, it start to develop themes of ideas that you should address. And then from there, based on the commonality uh, and the frequency in which some of these things come up, you then start to design solutions around mm-hmm. what those problems, you know, how to solve those problems. And then those are the things that we start to prototype and, and go back to, to customers with. Good. Because the interesting thing about, I think about seeing it across the wall, across multiple customers is um, that's when you get a sense of how prolific a problem really is mm-hmm. or what parts of that problem seem to really um, have commonality and, and which parts of it are sort of one-off situations that maybe at this point in time don't warrant a lot of development effort on. Right. 
And if that's just a fun process, I, I like affinity mapping and you get to play with post-it notes and, and do something as a group. So it's good. Yeah. And it's amazing sometimes how, you know, something that seems like it doesn't fit into a category, you might start moving it around on the wall a couple of times and you'll have conversations and go, okay, now that you've said that, I really think that that note that we placed on category two really belongs on category three. And, and just that notion of it being post-it notes and the ability to move things around makes right. it a lot more creative, fluid process as well. One guideline that I, I've seen used in, in that affinity process is anyone can move a note anywhere as multiple times as they like, right? So that you can have disagreements about where this thing really belongs. But if it gets moved a second time, then you rewrite it, make a copy and put it, you know, in, in the places you think it belongs and then deal with it later, right? As you start kind of synthesizing things. So good tools. You also talked about usability testing, and I'd like to know what you do with this, that you run it in your, your user conference, a usability lab. And I don't know what else you do with that, but I'm interested about how you structure this and what information you get. Yeah. So usability. Um, I know a couple of years ago, I read uh, Steve Krog's book called uh, Rocket Surgery Made Easy. And he was really talking about testing websites, but as I read through the book, I thought, why can't you test an application using the same methods? Mm -hmm. And the thing that I really loved about it was he kept emphasizing, this doesn't have to be a full-blown usability lab in order to, to actually do usability testing. Like, start small and then do something with what you learn. So uh, so that's exactly what we did is I went back to our UIX team and said, let's do this because I think this would be really useful. This is when we were still in the early stages of the new platform. And we all loved it because it's our new baby. And we think it's, you know, incredibly usable and easy to navigate because we spend our entire days in it. Uh, and we thought, let's let's do some usability testing around it. So we have clients that come about once a month to our Tampa location. And they're coming for what we call Teammate University, which is an opportunity for sort of the champions of the product uh, to learn more about the product and how to sort of administrate it. Mm -hmm. And we have a captive audience right there in the office with our development team. So let's take advantage of that. They have breaks and they have lunchtime. Um, so, you know, let's see if we can get them to, to participate for 10 or 15 minutes in, in doing a usability scenario. So really the setup of it was is in one conference room, we have a product owner um, and a client and they sit down at a computer and we give them a scenario, which is very high level. It'll be like from the launch page, find project titled X. And in that project, identify the status of a test Y, right? So that, and that's all the instructions there are. And then in another conference room, we have the development team that's working on features and functions and our UAX lead. And they're watching what the customer is doing through uh, Web WebEx, right? So they can see where the mouse, what the customer is moving the mouse and how they're trying to navigate the system. Hmm. And then we have a one-way conference line open so they can hear the customer. And we encourage them to sort of think out loud as they're working through a process. So the development team can hear what they're, what they're saying as they're moving through the, the scenario. And now, you know, so what they can see is, is, you know, the first customer might have no problem navigating through this and they can complete it in two minutes. And then another user might come in and they struggle a bit, a bit more and it takes them closer to 10 minutes to actually um, finish this. Or maybe they even needed help from the product owner in the room to actually find something. Hmm. But in that process, because people move their mouse there's a high correlation between where you move your mouse and where your eye is looking, right? So they can, you can tell where the customer is looking on the screen for things. And so we could get a sense of uh, how easy it really was to navigate the system, where they were expecting to find certain actions and features. And mm -hmm. if they were there, great, but maybe they were where the customer initially started to look or even things like how often 
um, you know, the, the, they would actually like type in search to go find something. Like you've given mm-hmm. them a specific title. Do they actually use the search feature or do they start scrolling up and down a list because maybe search isn't as obvious as we thought it was? And the great thing about that is that if you can run the same scenario through five or 10 users, you learn a tremendous amount about how usable um, your system really is and where what things trip people up. So you can go back, you can address those things, and then you run the scenario again with another five or 10 people hmm. and see if it runs smoothly or did they still get tripped up with things. Um, and that's we, we did that over and over and over again as we continue to develop out new features. And I think the great thing about that was by the time we actually market, we went to market release, we were really confident that the product was usable and it was mm-hmm. easy to navigate uh, because we'd done all of this iterative testing with actual customers uh, running through the process. And you learn a lot of really interesting things through that. So many of our customers are coming from traditional desktop applications where just like an action, like let's open something that's a double click on a mouse, right? Well, in the web application, that's not a double click, right? right. That's with a single click. But you would watch people double click. And we had spent a tremendous amount of time on making sure performance was ideal. So if you double clicked on something, it would open and close really fast. So there'd be this flicker on the screen because the product, you know, the application's done exactly what you've asked it to do, but the user doesn't, it, they don't perceive it as, and so you could even hear it on the phone, right? Like you could hear double click. And then a little more adamant, double click. <laughs> and then a third time really fast. And then, you know, and then you might have the product owner in the room saying, why don't you try single clicking on it? And they would single click. Oh, okay. And then they would go do the next thing. And then the, the next time there was a similar type of action, they'd go right back to double click. Hmm. And it's a learned behavior. And so what we, we realized watching in the other room was it's a learned behavior that's going to be really hard for a user to overcome. So can we do a better job of capturing that action and interpreting it for what the, what the user really means. So um, if you double click on something, we actually capture that as a click and there's a pause where we don't register the second click. Hmm. So it acts like a single click, even though you've double clicked. And so it opens. So the, the actual behavior is exactly what the user expected. And that was something that we learned through this usability testing exercise that I think if we hadn't done that and we had gone to market that would have been a huge frustration for a huge number of users right out of the gate. So that was a really important thing for us to learn. Yeah. I know another example I ran into the past was same sort of situation, right? Move from client server software into web-based software. And in the process, the uh, people doing data entry were used to a standard, what's it called? A 10 keypad. I forget the name, right? But there's a standard here for the 10 number pad. Yeah. And when they put it into the, into the web, they inverted it. So instead of like one at the top, it was now at the bottom. Um, um, and when they rolled it out, they didn't do the usability testing on this aspect of it. And when they rolled it out, people were so much slower and, and much many more errors were being made. And it took a while to figure out what was going on. It was because of that, right? It was their learned behavior. You're really fast on a normal 10 keypad, but uh, you put upside down. Sure, that's going to mess you up. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's really important to pay attention to those little details. Yeah, absolutely. So and the double click is a great example. Doing this, I like the simple setup, right? You, you didn't invest in a special conference room with a one-way mirror or anything like that. This was just WebEx, so you could see where their mouse was going, see what was going on on the screen, and a conference line that was muted on the other ends just so you could hear them and they could hear what was going on uh, back in the other conference room. And you, you looked at five to ten users per scenario. Did you find that, like, after how many did you find you, you pretty much knew what was going on? 
Um, they're really obvious things by the time you hit the third user. It's yeah. like, this is a problem, right? This right. is the third user in a row that's had the exact same challenge. We definitely need to address this. Um, you know, if it was sort of like, you know, one in five, one in six, you'd consider the change depending on how complicated it was. If it was one in 10, you kind of, it kind of went to the bottom of the list. Mm-hmm. And if it was a simple fix that you didn't think was going to affect someone else's usability of the exact same thing, then you might you might look at fixing it. But you, we generally found the really big things in the first three users. You would know, like we definitely need to fix this. Right. Uh, and, and you know, in fact, you might even have a developer in the room that's immediately starting to you know code a code a change to it because it's it's that it's that evident. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other nice thing about this simple setup is, so we did this for about six months in this format, and then. We also offer team at university on the road, right? So in different cities around uh, around the U.S. And it was simple for us to actually replicate the same environment because we would package up a laptop that had the configuration and everything on it necessary. And we would send it out with the professional services consultant who was going to run the university. And they would send us back sort of a, a schedule as to when people were going to run through the scenarios. And we could still be sitting in our Tampa office and watch the customer go through that. So the one-way mirror rooms are, are fantastic if you can afford them. But I sometimes think that when you um, physically build something like that, then it kind of locks you into, mm-hmm. uh, there's only one place that I can do this kind of testing. And, and, and as we talked about before, we've actually run this at our user conferences, that same sort of setup. Right. Regardless of where our user conference is, you know, we have staff in, in our Tampa office that are actually engaged in it because they're watching and, uh, you know, and they can see and hear what people are doing. In, in a conference that might be on the complete opposite coast. So that's been that's been really um, helpful to sort of think about it from that perspective. And really low numbers needed of people to get good insights from. Yeah. And people that are, for some reason might have a, in our data-driven product management tendencies, have this quantitative basis for wanting to do analysis. We don't need that for a qualitative research and we can get really good insights. There's actually some good statistical models that tell us that, you know, between 18 and 20 kind of people, if we're doing interviews, your contextual interviewing, you'll discover 90, 95% of all the needs out there. And when at that conference we were at, I've mentioned this a couple of times, I think on the podcast since then, we heard uh, Sarah Rob O'Hagan, the was the president of Gatorade when Gatorade turned around. That whole turnaround was based on interviews with 12 high school athletes which I just thought was amazing, right? Um, yeah. And we just need insights. And uh, you hear three people in a row share a problem with the UI, you know you have a problem. Yeah, there's there's no disputing it at that point. And, and the fact that you've involved people from your UIX department and your, and your development team and they can see it too right. uh, means that you don't need to because, um, you know, sometimes when you bring a problem forward to a team that's not experienced it themselves, then that's when they're looking for the quantitative data to back it up. Mm-hmm. But I think when they've had a chance to actually watch and experience and hear the frustration, right, in a user's voice, they're like, oh, yeah, that's a problem. And, and they don't need, you know, 25, 50 more people to confirm it. They agree that, yes, it's something that needs to be fixed or addressed. Yep. And there's other tools we could go into. Th- these are two I'm really glad we we're able to talk about contextual inquiry and then the usability testing and kind of your ad hoc usability lab that is portable and can go anywhere with you. Love that. We'll have to save other tools for a future time. And as listeners know, and you know, I love a good innovation quote. Which one did you bring us and why did you choose that one? So the quote that I picked was, um, innovation should demonstrate a relative advantage over other options, ideally including the technology currently used for the task. Better technologies will be adopted, plain and simple. Um, And that's a quote by Everett Rogers. And the reason that I liked that quote is, um, 
I often sit back and think it's great to compare yourself to actual competitors in the market, but how do we compete against doing nothing, right? Making no change. So mm-hmm. we've got lots of prospective customers in different parts of the world where um, technology is still a relatively new thing. So mm-hmm. there are lots of internal audit departments that are still using Word and Excel. So how am I competing with Word and Excel? How am I providing enough value that they would actually look at my product and go, I should really be using that. Right. Um, because they are going to use what's going to make their job easier and more productive. Um, and, you know, it, it's great to be a market leader. So we're certainly a market leader, but that just means everyone else is trying to knock you off the podium. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still have to win new customers from Greenfields. So what are we doing to make sure that we're, uh, we're, we're competing with that? I don't really have to make a decision decision right. and, uh, and, and, and not sitting back and resting on our laurels. The part that stands out for that, in addition to the technology aspect for me, is the relative advantage. Because I like to think of innovation in terms of providing more value, right? We have a new product that provides more value than the other options available to the customer. If it doesn't, then we've ended up with a me too or even a less value, and why bother, right? And so that relative advantage, I think, is important. Thanks for sharing Everett Rogers' quote there. And for listeners that just would like to reach out to you, how is the best way to uh, make a contact with you? So the best way to find me is I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so if you look for Colleen Knuff on LinkedIn, you'll find me there. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about uh, Teammate as a product, you can go to our webpage, which is www.teammatesolutions.com. Teammatesolutions.com. Great. Yes. I'll put both links in the show notes for this to make it easy for everyday innovators to find them. Colleen, thanks so much for sharing some of those voice of the customer consumer research tools with us. Well, thanks for having me, Chad. Thanks again for listening, and I'm glad you're making the move to be a product master. Find the summary of the discussion with Colleen at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 174. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.